brothers and sisters, you can still stand tall. Just be thankful for what you got. Though you may not drive a great big Cadillac, diamond in the back, sun top, digging the sink. With a gangster against the white wall, TV antennas in the back. Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Company on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, I want to bring back a friend of the program, really classic individual who cooked the groove with so many classic guys. Um, and uh, what an honor. Bill Maxwell, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. I'm happy to be back. I'm driving. So this is a, an interview uh, on wheels. Interview, yeah, on the move, man. I'm, I feel like I'm on the move. Um, outside of Andre Crouch, did you like play with other gospel, African American gospel groups? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I produced the Winans, and uh, and I produced Stevie and Skippy's first album. So I did some concerts with with both of them, and then I I played on the with for Edwin Hawkins and Walter Hawkins on an album. I think I did uh, uh, one for Richard Smallwood. Uh, yeah, I mean there's, there's probably more. Morris Morris Chapman, of course, Danny Bell. Uh, what do you think about like like what do you think about like what 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 were what do you feel like you added? Take one session as a producer. What did you feel your niche was in those sessions? Uh, you know, maybe I, I don't know. Like I, I, I came at it from a different angle, maybe than uh, than from gospel music because I I didn't grow up in gospel music as I told you before. I grew up uh, playing in bands and in nightclubs, and I became a Christian when I was 22 years old. And I just took my lifelong experiences of playing all kinds of music. So I, I brought that, you know, I think it may be a little bit of a touch of, of jazz to some of these things, but not, and, and maybe a little more uh, traditional art, a little more. And uh, of course, I used a lot of the guys that I grew up playing with, like Hadley Hawkinsmith, who had a very distinctive guitar tone and was not like what you were hearing on gospel records. Um, okay, let's break. Let's get down in, in the weeds here. I mean, what were you hearing on gospel records? In my mind, Bill, like, I get these, uh, you'll find, like, very ra rare, like, you know, I'm blanking on the cat's name now, but it's these old sanctified churches in the middle of rural America, and you hear that electric bass, and you realize, you're like, that's where Chuck Rainey and Jerry Jamat and you know Wilton Felder after he you know when he picked up the bass like though that that was the sound of the bass but what what was Hadley what was the difference with Hadley versus the traditional gospel player on guitar he didn't Hadley didn't come from gospel at all Hadley was very influenced by uh, I would say the combination of Wes Montgomery and B.B. Uh, uh, King and Albert Collins so he was a blues type player, wow. but Hadley's a, a consummate musician. His ears are so good that he always knew something great to play. He put his own spin on it. As a matter of fact, to me, Hadley had a style when he was 15 that is still is very much the same. It's his personality. And so I used his personality uh, on a lot of those records. I don't know if you know who Raphael Sadiq is. Uh, but I'm not hip to no. I'm not hip to him. Yeah. Well, he, check him out. He's one of the biggest artists right now. He's a top producer. Produce uh, Mary J. Blige, and uh, he's, he's producing Adele right now. And he's he comes from gospel music, but I didn't I didn't know that. I'd heard about Raphael because he's so respected in the R&B world. And someone said he wanted to meet me, and I met him, and he's 
telling me every record and all of so he learned all this music growing up because his parents wouldn't let him listen to anything but gospel. <laughs> he lived off of the Winans and Danny Bell and Andre. But he came to hear me. Oh, wow. Oh, he lived off. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, go ahead. He, he came out with, with Maxwell's All-Star Band, something I did with Abraham Laboriel, uh, Tony Maiden from Rufus, Hadley Hawkins-Smith, and Jeff Babco. And he walked in, and he heard Hadley playing, and he just walked and said, you're the guy that did all that. That's you. <laughs> he had no idea. You know? I mean, and so, yeah. I, you know, Hadley, I, I, put, I put a lot of him, and I put a lot of Harlan Rogers, who I grew up with in Oklahoma. We were in bands together. Harlan played on that. And so we kind of, as musicians, our style intertwined with what they were doing, and somehow people accepted it and liked it. Um. Yo, I need. I gotta get. I gotta get together with Harlan. I know he's fishing a lot, but I really need to talk to him. Uh, him, uh, Tackett knew Tackett knew Harlan and worked with him a lot, as well. I mean, can you talk about Fred Tackett as a drummer? I mean, were you guys like uh, doing cut sessions together? Like, I mean, it got pretty intense well, Fred, in, in Oak uh, City. Well, Fred was Fred was from Arkansas, and I I I can't remember how he got to Oklahoma City. I think. Uh, he was at North Texas, but he came up to play with Joe Davis. Joe Davis was a, a sax, very good saxophone player that was had a had a house band at a place called the Copa Habana, uh, not Copa Cabana, but I think it was Copa Habana in Oklahoma City that would bring in, you know, of artists that were not as big as they used to be, like Bobby Rydell or whatever, and they would they would travel with maybe a house piano player, and they would use the rhythm section. Uh, and they and 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 whatever and local horn sections too, and so he brought Fred up because Fred could play trumpet. He was a really good trumpet player, he, and he could play drums, and he could play guitar, and he could read anything. And so Fred was in that playing in that band. Wow! And he could read had, anything. He could read. Oh yeah, he's a trumpet player. Yeah, it's okay. Of course, of course, he can read. Wow. Yeah, he's a wow. trumpet player. See, most guitar most guitar players didn't didn't read except the jazz guitar players. <laughs> that's what that that's why uh, when Dean Parks moved to Los Angeles, it was all these reading guitar players like Tommy Tedesco, but they weren't real rock and roll funk guitar players. Those guys couldn't read. Well, Dean came in town and he was funky and he could read anything because he was a saxophone player. And he immediately did all the sessions. The Jackson Five. I want you. I mean, Maxwell. I mean, I also like one guy. Like I just feel like there's like different, you know, sort of like contiguous orbits that go around. I mean, especially like in that Southern California universe, and um, like Laborio and you. I mean, can you talk about? the the most um, tangible important things in order for a rhythm section to play a variety of music I think that's one thing that's you know a little bit hard in live music today in my mind you know is, is that you get an R&B show or you get a jazz show or you get one genre instead of getting a, a bigger bag of tunes and as a rhythm section whether it was in wherever it was where you were where you were gigging what are, what are you and Laboriel like? What are the in, in either in the studio or live? What are the intangibles for a rhythm section to cook the groove? Well, there's no. I mean, there's so many different things that would go into it. So you might have a drummer who's a really anchor drummer, a beat drummer, and like John Robinson, excellent, excellent drummer. You know, plays on so many records, but John sounds like a record. So with John, you maybe would have a bass player that plays with him but is maybe a little bit busier because he's very anchor-like to bring it out. Or you might have a busy drummer, and uh, if the bass player is busy too, it's just not going to work together. So you have a guy that uh, uh, maybe with a busy drummer, the bass player is a little more submissive to him. Well, you get me and Abraham, we're both kind of busy sometimes, but we both will get out of each other's way. So sometimes he's doing more, sometimes I'm doing more. But we, the basic thing is to love the song and honor the song and try to find what it is that makes the song work. What is the pulse? What is the best groove for it? 
what can we do to bring home everything? The harmonies, the melodies, help the singer. You know, it's really submitting all of that to the song. Uh, so many people just play to hear themselves play, and they don't—they're—they're they're not sensitive people. Uh, you know, the way the way you play an instrument is like your personality shows, and so musicians uh, need to be sensitive to each other. I mean, you'll find some guys that don't seem sensitive. They're talking all the time. But when, you, when they start playing their instrument, they turn into another person. They've learned to submit the instrument to the music they're playing. And there's certain combinations of guys that work. I mean, there's some great bass players, and I don't fit with them. I don't know what it is. And, and, and there's some, you know, some other guys that maybe wouldn't be as outstanding, but I fit really well with them. But my friends, I always want to listen. And I don't, I, I don't want to get in the way of the most important thing. And whatever that thing is, you try to find it. You don't know it at first. You, you're hearing the song and you're saying, wait, was this, if we put it on this bar, the emphasis on this beat, on that, that helps bring it home. Or it needs to build here. It should go quieter here. And you, then you've got to work as a unit. When people start feeling that way and working as a unit, then it's incredible. Can you give, like, a, an example and, like, uh, personalize it a little bit. <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I'd have to, you know, play you a song. But yeah, I, no, I, no, I mean, like, we don't. We just don't. We don't want to deal in platitudes. You know, like we we want, we want to get down. Yeah, I mean, I know what you're saying. Like, it's probably too hard to even. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it really. But, I, but I'll just break it down. It's it's a matter of listening and going together. And it's like a it's like a, a car when it's tuned up. And the, and the alignment's right. Everybody, everything's going the same direction. It works, but if something's pulling the wrong way, it's not going to work. And when you get musicians that are kind of pulling, they're not working together. That that's that's what happens. Now we're in a period of music that pop music, where it's it's all machines and it's all playing with machines, and uh, it, so it's new animals. Well, it's not going to, it's not, I mean, it's not going to, unfortunately, it's not going to be authentic. I mean, you talk about people on the bandstand that are not sensitive. It's because they didn't grow up playing live the way you guys were able to play six, seven nights a week for months at a time in upholstered sewers. They play in their rooms, they're wanking it off, so they have no idea what it's like to have a conversation. That includes part of my generation. They don't have those places anymore. When I was a kid in Oklahoma City. That's right. There was probably eight or nine places having live bands every night. And I would play. I went. Through Wednesday night. And then I would go to another club and I'd play Thursday night from midnight till 3.30 in the morning. Then I'd play Friday and Saturdays from 9.30 to 4 in the morning. And, uh, I'm 16 years old. And, 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 and so I guess more to the point, more to the point, how did you have to like lose your ego and, uh, and, and learn to converse? Because that's what these cats are, are lacking is that because they're so into themselves because all they've been doing is just wanking it in their room. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't, by the time I, I put in my time in the room for about a year, and because I played other instruments first and I kind of had a basic knowledge of music, the uh, drums came real fast. So I was working immediately. I'm talking 13 years old when I was with Jesse and Davis's band. Mm-hmm. And so at, th- at that point, they kicked my ass. <laughs> you know, they, they, it was like, what are you playing here, you dummy? Keep the beat. Right. Listen, you know. Right. I mean, and you, it was just, it was just, I mean, it made you, well, I mean, yeah, talk about, you know, basically sort of understanding that, yeah, it was like tough language and it was very critical, but you knew they actually really loved you and wanted you to be in the band. And that's why you made it yeah. work, right? I mean, like, that's the point. It wasn't like they, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, they, they, they wanted me to be better, but, right. you know, they, 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 they wanted to get their point across. Um, so they, they, you know, they were they were they would be pretty specific. And the other thing was, in those days, 
if you didn't get the people dancing, they were going to get another band. So I had to learn to submit myself to those dancers. So the drummer, I had to be grooving that beat. And they had some serious kind of swing dancers and all that people, and people that dance in the pocket, especially in the black clubs. And so I had to, I had to play for the dancers too. Yeah, who was the it's best tambourine? Yeah, no, who's the best tambourine player you ever played with live? Uh, well, just, Jack Ashford is pretty great. Well, no, no, so you and but you and Ash were probably in the studio, right? Yeah. I mean, because he yeah, moved he, out, he, he came he, out. He, yeah, go ahead. He's in Memphis. But what, he came out here. What was it? I want to get your perspective, Bill, about um, you know, I. I my first book's coming out. I can't wait for you to, to get, get yourself. You're going to love this book. You're going to, it's only volume one, so you're going to eventually make it into whatever volume it is. But there's a... <laughs> the, 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 um, you're really going to dig it. One of the cats in the book is Dennis Coffey, and he was one of the, 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 the second iteration of, right. the, of the Funk Brothers in Motown. So uh-huh. we've vetted that pretty hard. And he talked about Barry Gordy going out um, to L.A. And, and in Coffey's mind... Uh, it would have behooved Gordy to keep his music regional in Detroit. RCA and MCA, you know, these record companies wanted to build studios out there, but Gordy wanted to get into movies and Hollywood and stuff. So he took his music out there and lost that regional sound. That was what Coffee said. You, Gadston, Green were like the, the first call gospel. Mo- How much Motown work did you do when you got out there? Do you agree with that assessment? And who did you ever work? Uh, you know, what do you think about that? I agree with it somewhat. But obviously, there was a the, the sound of that studio was very unique. It didn't sound like any other place. And and then and then when they had the falling out with James Jamerson, that changed everything because Jamerson was really the, the bass was the loudest thing on those records. Uh, <laughs> and he, he he was he, so funky, and, man. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. just let him go. And that, which is, I'll get back to your question, but another funny fine, story yeah. is when they came, they, when they came out here, they were trying to find someone to play like Jamison. No one played like Jamison. So they got uh, Gene Page to write out all the bass parts that he thought James Jamison would play, <laughs> right, reading, writing every note. But no one could read them. No one could read them except for Wilton Felder. No way. Wilton Felder, Wilton, Wilton Felder, being a saxophone player, could read anything, and he played that great bass line on the Jackson Fives, I Want You Back. That, Maxwell, dude, why are you making my day, man? Dude, you are making my day. That, that, is... was, that, <laughs> that was a written part that Gene Page wrote, wow. and, and Wilton could read it. So Wilton immediately became the Motown bass player for out here because did, did, I mean, did you, did you get to play, I mean, did you, did you ever, um, what, what happened to Jamerson? Did he, did he not, did he stop playing? I mean, did he, did you ever gig with him? Like, I mean, it's, I, I have to be honest. I mean, Will, no, I never, yeah. I never played with him. I played a lot with his son, James Jamerson Jr. And, uh, wow. you know, James Jamerson Sr. had a really bad alcohol problem. I mean, he was a, just a terrible drunk. And by the time he was out here, it, it, he wasn't working. It, he'd fallen out. It was, it was, he was drunk when I, when I was coming in. So I, I played with his son. His son actually played on a couple of Andre songs, uh, one called It's Gonna Rain, if you look that up. But his son sounds really good on it. Uh, but I knew, I knew a lot about his dad and some people who were with him. Yeah. No, I, you know, we have a game on this. What was your, I mean, so Wilton, what what Motown sessions? I mean, you definitely were cooking the groove in that studio. Maybe working with Freddie Perrin or Gene Page. No, I didn't. I, I well, I, I worked once with Freddie Perrin, but I, I don't remember what. I worked. Uh, what's the you guy don't remember what you worked on with Perrin, dude? That dude was well, that dude was crazy, man. No, I I, I remember <laughs> this going to that little studio. I lived right by it off Colfax and Ventura. Yeah, <laughs> it'll uh, come. Go ahead though. Yeah, what were you saying though? But. Uh, uh, Hal David, Hal Davis, was the producer I worked with. You know, black guy, great guy, and he produced a lot of Jackson Five stuff. I don't know that. And so what, was his, what was where did he, What was his background? How, how did was he just there when you got there, or how did that happen? I just got. I, rec- I think Dean Parks recommended him to me, and me and David Williams. So I remember David Williams, but 
he was the guitar player that played on Billy Jean. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, no, I mean, he, we lost him. But, He's gone. He left us. And so, and so me and David and somebody else, and we would go in, and this is when they were starting to, uh, before the drum machine starting to make loops. So they would have me, I remember just playing beats and grooves and players grooving and, and go to the bridge and do that. And then they would take my beats and they'd turn them and like they loop them around and sew them together and then cut tracks on top of them. So I was doing rhythms for them. What I you, didn't know what they were coming out of. Wait, wait, hold on. What were they, what year was this? 1978. Uh, okay, I want I want to be very clear. They were looping your. You were just playing beats, and then they were they were already. I'm playing. Yeah. It, they would yeah they would they, they would put them on a I don't know if they put them on a 24 track into a loop and then transfer it to another. But yeah, they were already doing stuff. They had a, they had this crazy engineer, <laughs> Roger Dollar, Ro, Roger Roger Dollarhide. And he would do things like take heart blisses and 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 VSO them and tune them and throw them in there. There was without a heart player being there. Motown was already getting into what has become rap and sampling back in the late seventies. Yeah, it seems incredibly ahead of its time. That's unbelievable. But Maxwell, we have a game on this program called uh, Name That Voice. I don't expect you to know who, who's speaking, but just want you to pay attention to the lyrics, and then we'll come back and, and break it down. Okay. All right. Spiritual thing is is basically when you're playing, and it's just not bebop. This is other music too, but bebop is in jazz is probably that's the high end of what we do mm-hmm. as jazz musicians. But but just the spirituality comes from it's it's like it's like something. Now this this may sound abstract, but it's something that Wayne Shorter said to me one time. He said that the only way you can really 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 play is that you have to go to the store and buy some milk for your grandmother. You know, <laughs> and when he said that to me and the drummer, Omar Hakim, now he had a few few drinks, a few old drinks. Right. I said, wow. But a couple <laughs> days later it hit me, you know, because, you know, it's like to come, if you have one of those kind of families, you go to see your grandmother, she says, go to the store and get me some milk. And you go there, there's a love, there's a... There's something, there's a love for something other than just what you're looking at. It's like your own personal love, which, you know, which could come from God, which could come from the force of of life. It could be whatever it is that makes you, that you think makes you tick. Mm -hmm. That if you tap into that, whatever that is, it's not, it's not a material not the instrument it's not the notes it's it's the life force it's this it's it and that is very when you operate on that band that's uh that's or on that uh, frequency in life that is very spiritual you know that was uh, my interview first interview with stanley clark from september of 20 september 2014 and um you know i just wanted you bill i wanted you to just talk about he used the the abstraction, the Wayne Shorter analogy, or the abstraction of uh, going to the store to get your grandmother some milk. But it's like a divine love, and I just wanted you to riff on whatever came into your heart and your head at that after hearing that. Well, Wayne's absolutely right. I mean, the George Washington Carver quote is simply service that measures a man. And so, when you really serve somebody, that's submitting. That's what I'm talking about during the floor. When you went out and you're in love that with a pure heart to help somebody, that gets you ready to make music because that's what, you know, as, as I've said many times, music changes the atmosphere. It can, it can make people, it can make people laugh, it can make people fall in love, it can make people go to war. And, but it's, uh, there's, there's a force behind it. And uh, Wayne Shorter is talking about that supreme love, as John Coltrane talked about, which to me is the love of God. But yeah, you, you you want to be ready like that. When you play with people, if their egos are out of the way and you set it down and they're very great musicians and you're serving each other and you're trying to serve the people, then something great takes over. So you talk about, you talk about like an early, there. can you talk about an early experience in your career when you experienced that live? Mine would be because all my times of playing in nightclubs and traveling around the country as a teenager, we were trying to become 
recording stars and trying to make people like us and, and to get hits. And it was all about us and we're the best band and we're this and we're that. But when we're, when I started playing at the mission in Oklahoma city, for the open door with Harlan Rogers, Hadley Hawkinsmith and Fletch Wiley, and we're playing for drug addicts and old like alcoholics <laughs> that had no place to live. Wow. And we're giving them everything they have and we're thinking about them. How can we help them? Jeez, dude. Holy cow, we... man. Are you so, kidding me? So, no. This is like the great I mean, this is nothing. so this is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, we did we we didn't get paid. We were we we did it wow. we did it for a spiritual thing to change people's lives to help them. Jeez. So when I saw that uh, and and the and and the great things that came out of it, that whole experience is what changed my life. That's how I met Andre Krebs. That's how we ended up moving to Los Angeles. That's how I became a producer. It all started by serving and trying to help less fortunate people. Um, you when you when Hadley and got you into the church, you guys came up with an idea to play and give back. Is that when that manifested, or was that happening while while you were still using drugs? No, no, I I I was I was using drugs when I was up to, I was in I was in Nashville in a band called Barefoot Jerry, and then uh, that that fell apart, and I came back to Oklahoma, and it was really strange. I went to a bank put some money in and I ran into the old saxophone player from my band Third Avenue Blues Band and he said what are you doing here I thought you moved to Nashville I said I decided to come back and he said yeah I ran to Hadley and he told me you were going to start coming down to the open door mission and playing with him <laughs> and I said he told you that and I would never told Hadley that and Hadley had never told anyone that Wow. and I just said well maybe I will and so I called Hadley up and he said yeah we're down here it's just you know, it's just a, uh, a keyboard player or something, and I'm playing bass. And I said, well, sure, if you want me to play, I'll come. And I came, and then then we got Harlan, and Harlan quit the band, and he came, and then Fletch, and then we started a little band in there, and we were going to play a couple of nights a week, and the people started coming. So it just became like six or seven nights. We, we could call them revivals. And this went on for about six months. Um, I mean, we just, this was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a boarding house or was a place for, for, for people that it, were, it was a, it was a, it, it was a rescue mission. It was like one of those dumpy places you'd see, like just, just walk in a room with yeah. a bunch of chairs, like an AA meeting. Yeah. Wow. Wow. We had a, we had a, and we moved the B3 in there and some speakers. Oh, and, dude, I'll tell you right now, man, that is what, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest unsung untold stories in music history it's the most beautiful thing i've ever heard in my life dude <laughs> haven't heard anything oh, like that ever you know, oh it was powerful it i mean there's a lot of you know and that went so and actually powerful. that went on in in a few places but yeah you were touched at that point um yeah, we, no it was I mean, you know, we, we, we were just, it was incredible. You talked about um, early on, like, were you a bebop drummer? I mean, did you play jazz? Yeah, I kind of did. I, 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 would, I would have told you no before, <laughs> but then someone gave me, gave me some tapes later. Really? Holy cow, man. It was funny. Justo Amario, the great saxophone sure, player, that I yeah. with, ran, ran, in, ran into a guitar player that I grew up with in Oklahoma named Rick White. And Rick is a very good guitar player. And Justo said, Rick told me, he said, man, when he was 15, he played like Tony Williams. <laughs> and then Justo said, well, whatever happened then? You didn't play like that anymore. <laughs> but I guess, you know, when I was 15 or 16, I was trying to be Tony Williams and Elvin Jones. And, and was that, I, that was my question is, uh, the great sax player, Gary Bartz, um, he talked, he talks about now because we're inundated with so much visual information as it relates to melodic improvisation, other, some people call that jazz music, that most cats that are coming up playing music now are learning to read music first before they're, they learn it by ear. His, from him, his point of view at Juilliard, there was no jazz curriculum. 
um, in the bebop era, uh, you know, you learned, you learned music by ear. So your ears were never locked. And, 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 and as opposed to learning it first by, by, by sight. And I wanted to know if you were an ear trained musician, if you think that, um, I don't know, Charlie Parker used to listen to the radio, every kind of music and learn to play it in all 12 keys. Um, his ears were so you got your ears were so wide open. So I, I mean, were you were you ear trained first before before sight? Yeah, I mean, mine was a funny experience. I don't know if we talked about it before, but uh, you can just riff, just riff on it. Yeah, there. she died when I was two months old, and my grandparents, her parents, took me because my father had three three sons, and it was, and we lived across the street, but they. They claim, and I can kind of understand it, that they had a violin, and violins are tuned in force, and they listened to the Grand Ole Opry every Saturday night, and they claimed that they were something was playing, it was a violin, and I went over and picked up, and I was playing instantly right with it. No way. No way. Oh, my. Wait, wait. How old were you? How old were you? Two. I was two. Two years? But what I was doing, yeah, yeah, but what I was doing was I was just playing drums, probably, and just moving across the strings. It happened to be in the same key. Yeah, I mean, you got lucky they were in the, the same floor, key. So I mean, that's insane, man. Yeah, so it wouldn't have worked. So I was like, I was doing that stuff. And, and they said, we we got to put them in a music school. So they they put me in a music school, wow. uh, a, a preschool, Mrs. Hickman's Music School in Oklahoma City uh, at two years old. And they taught me how to read treble clef. So I learned how to read treble clef before I learned how to read words. And then I, you know, I played little mallet instruments, and I played some piano, and I played. Uh, I had a trombone, and, and then I bought a guitar, but I didn't like that. And, uh, and <laughs> you like the perc- of, you like the percussion instrument? Did you play like? I kind of I kind of settled on piano, and uh, but then I had a piano teacher that was a terrible piano teacher. She didn't want me to because I had ear. She wanted me to use in my ear. And she wanted me playing everything just at the same tempo it was written at, and I didn't want to play it at that tempo. I wanted to play something different. Absolutely. So I was arguing with her. I was arguing with her, and finally, at about 11 or 12 years old, I said, forget this. I'm going to play drums. And so they had a summer band program after my sixth grade, and I went to a band teacher, and I, and I said, said, what do you want to play? I said, I, I think I want to play drums. And he said, I knew your mother. Your mother was a great jazz piano player. You should play something you could really make a living at, like clarinet. And, uh, <laughs> of course, <laughs> you don't make a lot of make a living because he played clarinet in the symphony. But I took a summer band course of drums, and I was off. I had a, bought a snare drum, then I got a bass drum, and then I got some tom-toms and cymbals and took some drum lessons, and then I, was, and then I put a band together. Did you ever, did you ever play, then, like... I mean, did you ever play like spoon solos for the winos and people like that? No, I never played spoon solos. <laughs> probably played some bad drum solos for the winos. The, the, but, uh, you know, it, it, what it comes down to is like um, everybody getting into a room together. I mean, I, it's really ama- It's amazing to me um, how. I mean, Keltner could be talking about, you know. Chuck Rainey in a studio doing cutting Josie for Steely Dan and Rainey's head is right by Keltner's hi-hat, you know, and then it gets to baffles and then, you know, you're emailing uh, uh, your your piece that's going to get pasted into Pro Tools and, and we get farther and farther away from the actual intimacy of creating music together as it relates to recorded oh, yeah. music. And, and I, and I don't know, do you feel as somebody who has definitely accessed the multidimensional self, do you feel like that's something that has to be a revolution of consciousness to come back around again? Are you seeing it already? Or how do we get back to a time when I'm people not, are making love? I, yeah. Or, you I'm go ahead. It. I'm not, I'm, I'm not seeing it. No, I, uh, so, if, you know, I've just gotten older now and, and kind of grumpier that I know how to do that stuff. I don't want to do it. Right. Why? Why, wait, why, why don't you want to do it? Why not? Why not? I spent, you know, I don't know. Did you ever see the TV show, Martin? Sure. 
it was a six, I did the music for Martin. And so uh, I did Martin and Jamie Foxx. So I was, you know, all week with a hip hop guy and the machines and been listening to, uh, you know, Biggie Smalls or, or, or I, you know, whoever was hot, Snoop, and uh, just to put it and, and, and kind of recreating those grooves and doing that, playing one thing at a time. And I got so sick of that after about eight years of just making music in the box. Oh, yeah. And, and doing it. And I, and I did a couple of uh, R&B type gospel albums with a great singer named Helen Baylor where I did a lot of that kind of, you know, getting it all perfect and it's in the machine and we, uh, we you know, it would be some live drums but more more of a traditional what's, what's going on on the radio and we'd get every little thing locked in and so perfect. And, I you know, I listened to it a couple of years later and it sounded dated to me. And, but the stuff I'd done that was live didn't sound dated to me. So I just said, you know, I want to make music that lives. I don't want to make music that's just that's right. up for the moment. Wow. So I, 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 just, I, I, I say I know how to do it. I've been there and been involved in this. It's just not, it's not, it's not what I want to do now. I want to go out and play great music with great people and play for people. I don't want to play for machines and I don't want to play for backgrounds on in movies and television anymore. It, you know, I want to play for people. I, you know, I, that's, that's what I started doing and that's what I like to do. Well, I, no, I dig I it. Wanna, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, it comes full circle, but I'm, even for you, are the venues limited or could you set up your own, like where you're at, like, like, are you able to play enough to get at, get stuff out of your system live enough, or is it affecting? Yes, yes. I you know I've I've got a band with with Abraham and Husto Mario and Tim Carmen called Open Hands, and we've kind of been out of it a bit because I had some health issues with my arm, as right. I told you, which is totally fine now. Good. And Abraham had some things where he'd be taken care of, but we're getting ready to go back at it. And we'll, there's a couple of places in town we'll play. Uh, baked potato probably and, and vibrato Herb Alpert's place and then they want us to go to Europe this summer and so when we go to Europe we have good crowds uh, you know like, uh, there'll be uh, I, they, did, they, they did something to honor me which was surprising uh, I guess it was two years ago in Norway and in Sweden and I didn't know what was going to be there I went in there was 5,000 people in this tent you know waiting they, they, they'd have shown up and all the music was music that I produced and played on that they rehearsed with other musicians for me to come play on. It was stunning. They never, they nobody told that. you because if anybody told you, you wouldn't have gone. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that is amazing, kind of a, yeah, man. I, That's amazing. But, you know, so, the, but there, we, there are people around the world. South Africa is another place where they really want us to go. And I, I, I went to South Africa and had a great time doing that uh i don't know i don't know in america you know i'll probably there's some places to play in in bigger cities minneapolis and chicago and new york but they've just got to get everybody out to do it uh, but here it, it's it's enough to get us get us going yeah well it's important for you to also you know uh be able to fulfill the cyclical nature of of life and you know where you start you know that that's how you started out was playing live for people. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've, and that's what I like to do. And like when the example you told me to give, when I recognized what it was like about serving, uh, I still want to serve. Right. I, I, I still, I still want to serve. I want to do something that's memorable to people when they come to it. That there's something special that happened, and uh, and to bring something spiritual there, to bring healing, to bring, to bring life, to bring joy. You know, to people to you know to, to change that environment and so music's powerful you know I, I i can remember so many instances where i saw james brown when i was 16 and it just destroyed my world i never heard anything like it and then when i heard uh, 15 or 16 with tony williams and lane shorter and herbie hancock and ron carter uh, just took me to another place and and it was, and, and it was, and it was really. I mean, I just want to be clear. I mean, they were essentially leaving the head of the tune 
and improvising on themes and, and conversing, and that's what was they were stretching out as opposed to just playing three, four minute standards. They, no, there was a whole thing. They had melody, they had harmony, they had solos, they had interludes. Right. They had, you know, and it, they were structured and right. it was free, and it was intellectual and yet it was passionate. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I think Wayne was a lot of that. Yo, can I ask you a question? Was it danceable? Was it danceable? No. I, I think I you could dance, dance to it. I think I could dance to it. I really think I could dance to some parts of it. Well, yeah, you could. You're just going to be free time. And, you know, yeah, exactly. Free to, movement. Free, he, man. He would, he, would, he, would, he would move the beats around. <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely not a straight 4-4 guy. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Unbelievable. Well, listen, I'll let you listen. We cooked for 43 minutes, man. Go get that soundboard. It was so – bless you, man. Thank you for healing me tonight, man. I really appreciate it, Maxwell. Oh, no, it's nice talking to you, you know, and good luck with everything you're doing. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm glad that you give – musicians a chance to express themselves and to, for people to get to know them a little bit and guys like fred that is such a wonderful musician and an even better person uh, you know that well you know, maxwell that's the point man we talked about it in the first interview man this is all about humanity man this is not this is not yeah. about any this is really more than the music and and uh and i just uh, as a heart i lead with my heart so i you know i can i i can i can you know those people, I can get those people right off the bat. And, you know, it's like really important to, uh, yeah, man, keep supporting me. Uh, I'll be out your way this week. Yeah, maybe, we'll maybe it. we will try to link up, if, you know, if your arm's back. Yeah, well, give me a call. I, I spent, I spent, a, I was on the phone for about an hour, a couple of days ago with Keltner. He called and it was really good. Dude, dude, Keltner yeah. is, uh, you know what, dude, I, me, you and Keltner need to grab a lunch or something, man. I mean, that would be a great yeah, do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's 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 my guy. I love Jimmy. I love I love both you guys a lot, man. You keep it up, man. It was, okay, okay, Jake. Yeah, good hang, okay, man. Thank you, man. Later on, dude. Okay, bye. Yeah, bye. Wow, that dude. I mean, that's salt of the earth right there. Bill Maxwell, legendary drummer. We'll be back with Darren Nay in about twelve minutes on the Jake Feinberg show.
which I believe costs $5 for the entire semester. It's been on my radar for a while, but I mean, when I, you know, that that's not a, that's not been on my radar for a Coltrane play. speak to Darren please yes this is Darren hey man it's Jake how you doing brother good brother how are you it's good to hear you man you ready are you ready to go yeah uh, sure all right here we go